Hey guys, uh, it's been a while. I am back. Uh, today we are being recorded at Luxtone Studios here in Boise, Idaho. Uh, no, I am not visiting and no, I am not on vacation. I moved here in uh, July, so I've been here uh, almost six months now, uh, but thus the long lag between the podcasts. So Life is funny. You know, I, I, um, I just turned 46 and I can tell you that on my 45th birthday, uh, moving to uh, outside of Boise, Idaho was not even on my radar. It was not something that my wife and I were even contemplating. Uh, but life, life uh, is not uh, in a straight line, and uh, and we're following that path. And you know, I could not be happier to to be here and in this environment at this point in my life, sharing this experience with my my family and my children. But so I say, you know, why? When I say I move, people go, well, why? Why Idaho? And then they go, why Boise? And uh. You know, I think, I think a lot of us talk about moving, and but very few of us actually do something um, that challenges us. And you know, I think we all have that certain um, fear of the unknown. But I, I just, I really believe that nothing good happens when you're comfortable. And so, I could tell you here, I'm extremely uncomfortable. Uh, I'm having to learn things that I've never done in my life. Uh, and I'm failing and laughing at myself uh, every single day, um, and and I'm, I'm enjoying every bit of of the humility that I'm that I'm faced with. Um, but I think beyond that, you know, it's 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 one of those things that I didn't want to be 80 and wake up one morning and look at myself in the mirror and say, "Hey, remember that time you were thinking about making that move out to a different state? Why didn't you just do that? Why didn't you just go challenge yourself?" to do something different. So, you know, here I am. And um, I don't see any any reason why I would return back to California. And uh, I'm really enjoying and embracing my new life. And I know my family has certainly risen to the occasion probably better than I have. And uh, even beyond my expectations, I mean, they're, they're incredible. Um, and they're inspiring to me every day. And speaking of inspiration today, um, we've got uh, Jade Howe, a uh, great uh, designer and visionary, um, who brought us the great How brand? And Jade, uh, Jade's got a long history in the business, uh, being hired on early at Quicksilver and HIC and Fox Racing. Um, you know, he's he's been around. He's he's really pushed uh, fashion from the action sports side into tailored uh, clothing that was you know embraced by a generation. Um, and, and we're still seeing Jade's influence shape uh, fashion today. So Jade and I talk about everything from, you know, his business and how it came to be um, to his land development projects that he's got going in California, what his vision is there. So we, we share some over overlap in that, uh, you know, whether it's me out here on the farm or him, you know, in, in his, uh, his own farmstead out in California, we share some some pretty funny stories and uh, we've got a pretty woven and, and parallel path together. So I hope you enjoy uh, what you hear today. It's good to be back with you guys. Um, I'm sorry for the for the lag, uh, but I, I did have to move my family out here and I look to get back on on track and, and keep producing uh, the show that, that I enjoy doing so much. So thanks for listening and I uh, hope you enjoy this one today. On the Brevity Code podcast, we'll explore a wide range of topics from the very people that give form and color to our world. We'll hear from artists, brand builders, industry leaders, pro athletes, fitness and endurance coaches, 
philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and many others. Through their actions, they enrich us with their vision, creativity, and bravery. Our guests have all been successful by flying in the face of conventional wisdom. We'll learn from them the ways in which we can apply that very knowledge to our own path and toward our own self-fulfillment. So guys, today I am excited uh, and honored and privileged to be with a good friend and a longtime friend uh, in the industry uh, and outside. His name is Jade Howe. He's joining us today on the Brevity Code podcast. So welcome to the show, Jade. Ryan, how you doing, buddy? Good to be talking to you. I'm good, man. I hear it's raining in SoCal. That's amazing. Well, you know, we were due for our annual rain, and so we're getting two days of it right now. Um, <laughs> it's been raining, raining pretty heavily. Newport Beach is underwater right now. <laughs> Stay off the 405. Yeah, I got to be at Santa Monica at 5 o'clock, so that should be fun. <laughs> <laughs> you better leave now. <laughs> we better stop. I know. <laughs> No pressure, no pressure. Um, no, I know. We got, we got a lot to get through. I, I got a lot to ask you. No, no, no. Take your time. We're good. I'm gonna, I already pushed that out a little bit. Sweet. So I think before we get into some of the more traditional paths that you and I share, and um, I, I think we, we both find ourselves at a bit of a unique uh, point in time in our uh, careers and with our endeavors beyond um, the fashion industry in general, um, as, as I, as I'm speaking to you now, I'm, I'm at a recording studio in Boise and it's not Boise cause they get pissed here. It's Boise. Boise. Yeah. If, if you say Boise, they know you're not a local and they will look at you funny and maybe they'll pull a gun. No, they won't well, do by that. The but they of have that them. beautiful flannel you got, I don't think you look like a local. That thing's pretty nice. Dude, I've been working on my beard and my, my stash for a while. <laughs> it's pretty good. I'm trying to blend. You but... got the look for sure. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm coming to you live here um, in, in beautiful Boise. And it's, it's uh, I must say, it's, it's a great place to, to call home since July. And, um, you know, we have a 10-acre hobby farm out kind of uh, just outside of the, the city here in a city called uh, Eagle. And, uh, but, but I'm intrigued because unbeknownst to me, you know, I was kind of flipping through some stuff uh, that I came across when I was, um, you know, wanting to have you on. And come to find out, you've got like a bunch of acres and you're kind of building your own, you know, private Idaho, so to speak, as well. Um, like what... What are you doing with that? What, what what drove you to do that? Is that a place that ultimately you you see as a hobby land, or do you want to live there, or what is what's going on with that? So that's a that's a loaded question. You call yours a hobby farm. I call I'm I'm a gentleman farmer. Okay, <laughs> gentleman farmer in the making though. Um, so you know that that started a couple of years ago when we were, when the whole how thing, which we're going to get to in a little bit was kind of winding down and I just wasn't feeling it. And I'm like, you know, I've just, I've got to find what's next. What is the next path past fashion or past this brand? And so my wife uh, and I took a little bit of uh, time off and we just kind of wanted to explore the coast. My wife has been fascinated by tiny home living and, you know, she got caught up in the whole craft cooking and tiny home living thing. And so we, um, rented a fifth wheel trailer, 
put my motorcycle surfboards, dogs in the back, and basically, you know, one cup, one spoon, one fork, <laughs> one pan, started down at the Mexico border with zero agenda and just wandered. Um, and how long was that know, journey? Uh, it was about six weeks, eight weeks. Okay. Um, we just went through the desert, uh, spent a bunch of time. We had no zero agenda and, and virtually no technology. We went, started down in San Diego. We explored, we, we discovered Borrego Springs. I had no idea that Borrego national forest is the largest national forest in California. You have seen pictures. I've been out to Ocotillo and stuff, but we just wandered through the desert. Um, it was in, it was in December, by the way. Uh, this was, I think 2016 and there was a huge drought. So there wasn't a lot of water, but it was really cold. Yeah. And, um, we ended up, you know, going up through California, up into Oregon and the whole time the, the dream just was like, Oh my gosh, this is unreal. We, we love this, how simple life is. And of course it's, you know, it's idealistic. You go on, you go on vacations and you're like, Oh, we could live here, you know? <laughs> um, yes. But we, we got, we, we found out quickly how, how simple things were, you know, just, Hey, it's you, me, it's the trailer, it's the dogs, it's the, it's the simple act of finding our food each day. Um, I would take our, we'd get jump on my motorcycle and we'd go scout areas like, Hey, do we want to go here? Do we want to go there? Just met a bunch of cool people on the way. And that really kind of set the, the bug, you know, once we did that trip, we're like, okay, I think we, we need to find a way we were thinking about moving up to Oregon, like every other, you know, California refugee. And, you know, they basically told us to go home, no more California. They'd met their quota on, on Southern California people up there. Um, but it, it, you know, we were still trying to, at that time we were still trying to figure out how to run, how and live remote. Yeah. So that was my question. So you, you know, you said you'd kind of, you know, one fork, one spoon, one coffee cup, like, okay, we're going on a, on a walkabout here. But what was the driver that kind of led you to even want to do that in the first place? Because I think a lot of people, they talk about doing things like that and they find an excuse why they can't do it, a work obligation, a family obligation, a financial, all these things that are very real. But you guys kind of pushed past that and you did it. But, but what was the why? Why did you do that? you know, I'm not so sure if it's a strength or a weakness, Ryan, but I, I tend to kind of live the lifestyle that I design for, uh, or that I, that I, I work in. It just seems to me to be better if I'm going to design surf apparel or product that I live that lifestyle. And I think for the past 10 years, I've been doing, you know, storyboards and research on just the shift and changes in, economics and and design and we were just all about this craft movement that you could see coming from you know a mile away and we got the bug i mean it literally started from an i think almost a dream standpoint an aesthetic standpoint and and so instead of just cutting it off cold we're like well can we make this work can we keep our LA, you know, business and move out to the country, so to speak, you know, like you can do when you live in, in New York, you can live upstate and then work in the city. So, um, 
I mean, I don't, I hope I'm answering your question, yeah. but that's kind of basically how it started. No, you have. And I think, um, I don't know if your boards, your design boards are public or if you go to, is it, um, what is your, the website where people can check out your, your. Oh, Jade, jadehow.org. Yeah. I think that's the one. And you have like some of the most amazing, I mean, I've been looking at design boards for 20 years. And those, yeah. some of those boards are, well, all of the boards with the color stories and the way you've done the theming and all, it's just absolutely, it's beautiful stuff. And, and now I see that beyond you having the right eye and that, that taste level, um, you know, you're, you're talking the talk, like you're saying, you're walking the walk, you're, you're literally, you have, you have some, you know, photo shoots, looks like you've done out in the desert and things and, you know, mixing the whole rock and roll influence and, um, and yet the city urban life, but bringing it out to the country, like it's personified on the visuals that I've seen. So, so I get that. So, okay. So you guys, you go, you do your, your living small thing and you had not purchased property at that point. And so how does that come about and how do you decide on where you ultimately are going to plunk down? So, yeah. Um, so that evolved. We came back from that. We had a cool, we had sold our, we, we basically had downsized cause this is right. You know what? I think 2013, 14, you know, we come through the whole 2007, 2008 deal and we had two, crazy homes in Huntington Harbor and all the, you know, accessories that go along with that. And I just think our footprint was a little big. So, um, we're like, okay, let's not, like you said, let's, let's, let's walk the walk. So I, we sold our waterfront home there and we ended up renting a cool little pad down in Newport beach, you know, right next to Hogue hospital, Lido Isle right there. And we were just just kind of plotting our our, our program out, and um, that was the jumping off point. I was riding my motorcycle, kind of retracing some of the steps through the desert that we had taken on that trip, and I literally just ran across this little town called Awonga, um, which is which is in between Warner Springs and Temecula. I mean, it's it's an hour, you know, an hour and fifteen minutes from Orange County or LA. And just awesome, awesome roads to ride up and through the mountains and kind of fell in love with the area. Didn't really realize northern San Diego County and southern Riverside County was that amazing and how close it was. Right. So um, we decided to, okay, let's do this. Um, and instead of buying anything, we, you know, were cautious and we ended up buying a fifth wheel trailer and moving into a kind of really a luxury um, resort trailer park with golf course and, you know, swimming pools and all that. But it was literally a 90% reduction in overhead in cost of living. Right. It was unbelievable how cheap it was to live in a trailer park. Did you wake up and have that moment where you got there, you, you're set up, you're doing this thing, and you probably had some pretty quirky neighbors in that hood, I'm imagining. And, I mean, did you just go like, what? what is this existence that I am living now? Like, what am I doing? Not not in a beyond, negative, but just, right? Just like, what is yeah, this beyond, new reality? Yeah. 
well, first of all, my friends are like, dude, you've lost it. You know, what are you doing? <laughs> right. And then the other half is like, oh, you're an early adopter, so I need to know what you're doing. Right. Uh, I want to see if you're on it, you know. So people would come out and just visit. But really it was just to scope it out. Like, is this for real? And this was, you know, I'm not saying this was, you know, we didn't break any ground here. But it was just the fact that we did it. You know, yeah. here we are not talking about it. And yeah. I we absolutely loved it i mean yeah. it was just cool neighbors bad neighbors great neighbors transient neighbors people coming in in and out a lot of snowbirds ultimately we knew we didn't want to stay in one place we kind of wanted to move around that was the original idea um until we found this property um that was just up the road from where we were, we were staying and so this property like what what are you what is the current state of the property and what is your vision for it and what do you What's the utopia dream? So my my mom and my wife and I were looking for an investment. My mom was really looking for investment. She was kind of tasking, you know, all the kids like, you know, help me find something to, to – she had a little bit of money she wanted to put into something. And so we're like, here, mom, coin off laundry or, you know, here's right. a, a wash and go or you – know, she's like, I don't – I want to do something that I'm passionate about. So Ezra and I said, okay, I tell you what, we'll – why don't we put some storyboards together? Why don't why don't each one of the brothers? I have five brothers and sisters. Why don't each one of us put a business plan together for mom and then let her pick the one she likes? So we just storyboarded this idea like how cool it would be if we had a farm that we could build some tiny homes on, um, either lease the land or kind of learn. You know, we started researching like uh, lavender and olive, you know, yeah. olive trees and yeah. different different crops that we could plant. We could do a little agritourism thing, but it really could be the drop, the backdrop for what we do, which is, you know, craft product, design product, um, market, build, brand. We just thought, you know, I think we could do this. And right about that time, we we saw this um, in our research. We saw this guy that does this thing called Outstanding in the Farm, and that kind of solidified it. And t- what us. is that? Out- sorry, what? Outstanding in the Field. Sorry. And what does that guy do again? I've heard this, but so he's a he's a famous. Oh, I wish I knew his name. I'm horrible with names. Uh, he's a famous artist. Like the like he does large geometric. He's he's been in like American Express ads and and Land Rover ads. He'll go to the beach and he'll do like a geometric design on the beach that's like two miles long, and then when high tide comes, it's gone. You know, um, so he's a visual artist. But then he started doing this little traveling food show where he would go around to farms and he would basically connect a community by saying, okay, you're the meat guy, you're the wine guy, you're the vegetable guy. I'm going to build this, you know, he's real good with visuals. I'm going to build this outdoor table for 200 people. You guys supply all the, all the components, all the, all the local goods. And then everybody that comes pays this price and they, all they bring is a plate. So you bring a plate, everything's eclectic, and you meet your neighbors over food and and cocktails, basically, or craft beer. Dude, I love this. So genius. So you've attended one of these things. A couple of them. In fact, my neighbor Tom, uh, who owns the Temecula Olive Oil Company, who's been a consultant for us on our farm, um, yeah, he's hosted them, and they're Ryan. They're just gorgeous. You just picture. You know, a table for three, four hundred people down the middle of an orchard, candle lit. Yeah. And you bring your own plate and and your your own fork, and that's it. And then you've got, you know, a staff of a hundred people 
you know, serving local, locally, you know, grown vegetables or locally harvested beef and local wine. And I met, I met so many of my neighbors that you never would meet because they're behind, you know, guarded fence or, you know, huge property. So it was cool. That's, yeah, I think the world, the world needs more of that, but I'd certainly like to, I mean, those are, those are the kind of things that, you know, my wife and I, we've even talked about on our, on our 10 acres, um, like how would we do that logistically and, you know, but, but to showcase the local vendors, right. The microbrew guys here, the coffee guys, there's probably yep. amazing pastry chefs here. And how do we, how do we bring this local community together? Is there such a great vibe out here? Um, and we've got with our, the way that, you know, that, the house and, and everything's set up out there, it just could be spectacular. So yeah, I, I hear you on that. Maybe I should call this guy. <laughs> Hi, well, you know yeah. he's 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 global now. He's, I mean, yeah. he takes that that food show around around the world, and it's a great concept. If there's been a million knockoffs, not knockoffs, I, I think he just inspired people. But he was by far, I think, the first that did it. And uh, and now there's we went and looked at the Labrador Farm last weekend just for some ideas, and they they had their little table set up and overhead light and same concept, you know. Also a way to, to kind of show your wares, your goods, like what are you doing? You know, what are you bringing to the community? So really yeah. good. I wouldn't call it a community outreach program, but it's something like that. Yeah, know? right. Uh, so so your property now, um, I mean, I'll see a post from, from time to time. You posted a classic one the other day. It was like a, a horse trough that was kind of elevated with, a, <laughs> with an open f- fire <laughs> underneath it. Like, uh, you know, be- and like this, like Cialis commercial for dudes, yeah. uh, you know, but, uh, what, I mean, did you actually take a bath in that or was that like just, a- I did, uh, my wife has been after me, Esmer has been after me to do this Japanese, you know, method of heating up, a, you know, our, my horse trough, first of all, is my, that's my soaking tub. That's where the Epsom salt goes in after a long day. And it's hot enough out there most of the year that I just use the sun to heat it up. But it was butt cold the other day. <laughs> and so I got my tractor. I dug a little pit. I dropped some wood in it. Not a whole lot. Of, I figured, you know, of course it's going to be hot at first. I'll let it burn down to coal level and heat this, you know, 200 gallons of water up. And um, actually, for the first time out, it worked pretty good. Um, yeah, a couple couple hot spots in there. Just that. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of science behind it. But um, yeah. You know, so we, we know what we're going to do on the next round and, and we'll dial it in a little better. Right. So you are, you're, you're actively living there. Do you have a place you go back and forth in Orange County too, or? I actually live in, in Orange County and I go out to the property every couple of weeks. We have a trailer. I'm in the process of building a tiny home out there, container home. That'll be our, that'll, that'll be a kind of a Airbnb kind of a thing. Cool. Um, you know, and, and this dream is, is is pretty cash intensive. Um, we've chosen, chosen not to take on any partners. So this is a long term, long term play that will fold into our life and kind of into our retirement as, as we get there, you know? Right. I mean, I think I'm, you know, the learning curve out, out here as well, um, on a similar note to what you're saying about, you know, developing raw land is, is, um, extremely expensive and i had oh no idea oh um you know yeah whether that's running power out somewhere or uh, connecting culvert pipe from one end of the property to another or you know just trenching or you know these these are large-scale commercial type endeavors and you know what do i know i've, I've been 
buried in clothes for 20 years and yeah you know yeah. it's it's been um a total eye opener and, and uh, uh however um a very fascinating um process and uh i'm 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 really into it i'm really into taking and shaping and curating my own frontier and and so I just got, you do have to be careful because at some point it turns into diminishing returns too. Cause you know, you can far out, outstrip your, you know, you can outpace your, your land value really easily too. Are you running into that? You know, actually the land is, I mean, we bought it, what, four years ago. I think the land is a, a, almost doubled. And the reason it doubled is we bought raw dirt. I did a bunch of due diligence on putting a well in. Of course it was the yep. height of the yep. height of the, um, of the drought and I ended up having to go down 500 feet to get good water or good, you know, oh strong my God. Yeah. Through solid granite. I mean, it was an incredible drill Two two days, um, 500 feet, but you're talking about some of the most pristine spring water. It's been percolating in solid granite for millions of years. So, um, that was fairly expensive and then running, yeah. you know, running power out there. And the other thing was just getting the permits. I mean, they yeah. immediately think if you're running power and water, you're going to grow pot, you know, um, <laughs> which all my neighbors, all my neighbors do, but that right. wasn't our goal. Right. So we had to prove that to them that we were, no, here's our plans for our farm and so on and so forth. But now that the water and power's in and, and my basic, um, irrigation infrastructure's in, it's on now, dude. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, we're in the home stretch now. That's uh, cool, man. I know. I, I wish I could say that. I got. I'm learning about water shares per acre and all that. What deep, deep well and all that too. It's it's uh, it's interesting. But we're we're nowhere near those kind of depths out here. Nor are we near the red tape that you probably had to go through. It's a little bit different out. You know, farmers have a lot of rights here, which is actually kind of refreshing. Um, and farmers no- have a lot of rights everywhere that's the oldest law on our books right i mean yeah. back to our founding fathers which is really good for for taxation and a lot of a lot of different things um plus we own the water you know i own my own water if the power grid went down i'd slap a you know some solar on it or a hand pump and i can pull water out of the ground yeah you're good i mean I, I know we drink so we have a we go straight well into the ground and then yep. we have a, pu- a a purifier which we don't even need because the the house the uh, the guys that had the house before us had. I drink. It's so weird to go to the sink where you wash dishes, right? And I just go pour myself a big glass of water right from the tap. And I you know people come over and they go, uh, "Where's your bottled water?" And I'm like, "No, no, no. This is a yeah. hundred times better than yeah. the bottled wa- bottled water you're gonna get." So, yeah, man. Yeah. Stark contrast. Stark contrast. So, so yeah, you know, really, yeah. let's face it, Ryan. It's just an excuse to buy a tractor and push dirt around. I mean, <laughs> that's what that's what men were built to do. You know, move dirt from one place to the other, and I just love it. Right. It's so primal. Right. It is primal. Yeah, I was. It was snowing the other day. I was out on my ATV pushing snow from one side of the driveway to the other and just having <laughs> a blast. I'm such an idiot, though. First time out, I broke my winch cable. Just Uh-oh. snapped. I was pushing. I got greedy. I had all this snow going. I had this great big roll of momentum on the snow and snap, boom, done, done. Uh oh. So tractor and, supply here we come. That's right, dude. So there's tractor supply. We got a. We have a retailer out here called D and B Supply. And seriously, my wife and I laugh at what's in our shopping cart now compared to when we lived in California. Like we got like a snow shovel. We got like chicken feed. We got like. <laughs> 
you know, the owl to protect the hawks that, uh, you know, scares away the hawks. To, I mean, we just, it is so funny, our life now. Like I told you, like offline, like, you know, I'm, my beanies from California didn't work. So you go to like the apparel section in DMV and you get the Carhartt thick when you throw it on because that's what really keeps your head warm out here. Yeah, that's what works. Like, yeah. we, like we were saying, you know, if you're buying your groceries, your food, your feed, and your buckshot at the same place, you know you're, you know you've made it. <laughs> yeah, you got it. I don't know if you've been to a D and B, but it, it's seriously, it's pretty great. I mean, they got they got guns to boots to headlamps and camping stuff, and you can yeah, no, it's, sit down it's mower fantastic. whatever you want. The Home Depot for the country, Dude, you know. Yeah, it's it's rad. Um, so, you know, I think it's funny, you know, we, we both come from this place, so, but I want to dive a bit into how we even arrived and trace a bit of your, you know, your lineage going back kind of, I think to when we met, which was in, in your days, the heyday of, of you doing the brand, how, and, you know, you're, you're a longtime industry vet. You've worked at Quicksilver back in the day and you've worked at HIC and, um, what the hell else did you work before then? Yeah, I went, uh, I actually worked at Quicksilver a hot second, um, at gotcha. And then I was, uh, taken away or, or offered ownership in HIC, which, um, was, you know, great opportunity. And then from there, um, basically set Fox racing up. Um, and then after Fox racing with how, right, right. I, I think what's, what's most well, let's let's talk about Quicksilver back just for just for a minute. Indulge me. So you're what? This is eighty eight. Uh, yeah, eighty eight, eighty nine. I was right out of design school. I was, I think, I was twenty. You know, I was a kid for sure. And what was that scene like back then? Because Quicksilver was pretty much legendary, and you know, I mean, every, I mean, I remember. I that's I wore Quick and Stussy back in the day, and you know, you yeah. were there designing it. So what was that like? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I mean, come on. That was that was a dream job. I had actually landed a small manufacturer right out of design school. I was hired because I was, I was waiting tables working at the Ritz Carlton down in Laguna Beach and got hired. It's a whole nother story from a guy I was waiting tables on to design <laughs> product for him. And while I was there, I did this, I did this short. I was trying to figure out, you know, as a surfer, surfing Salt Creek, just getting pummeled down at, at gravels, yeah. um, took a beating down there. Um, I was trying to design a board shirt that had some stretch in it. So <laughs> I came up with this idea to put canvas and neoprene together. And that was, turns out it was really difficult to do just to get the right machines and right technology to do it. Anyway, long story short, I did that. And that short ended up, um, somebody at Nordstrom saw it. They bought into this line that I was working on called Australia Surfing Life, which is a magazine out of Australia. And they wanted some apparel and, some headhunter from Quicksilver saw that thing. And I mean, it wasn't even a day or two after that Nordstrom's catalog broke that I got a call um, to come into quick. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, it was just, I was there. That was back when Leanne was there and yeah, 12 interviews later with her and Bob. And, you know, I got hired on as, as the boys designer. Insane. And how long were you there? Um, I think it was there, uh, three years. So it was, you know, pre-public through the public, yeah. uh, you know, raising the funds and going public. It was, I mean, it was a rock and roll show. I mean, listening to your podcast the other day about, 
the days, you know, of Paul Frank, the early days, or you think about the early days of Moss or any of those brands. I mean, Quicksilver was, was the, you know, Quicksilver University. Everybody that is in the industry essentially came through Quick at one point. Yeah. And uh, it was phenomenal. I mean, I am so grateful to Bob to this day for that opportunity. Yeah, no, I bet. And so, and then let's, let's fast forward that experience and, and your method of thinking as it relates to how, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to me, you are someone that's, when you were talking earlier about you bought land out there and people were like, all right, the hell's Jay doing out there? What am I missing? You know, what's coming around the corner next? I mean, when I think about, you know, your design aesthetic and and vision on taking, you know, the whole skinny jean movement and, and blending that with, you know, sartorial, you know, men's tailored suitings, but then kind of like roughing it up and giving it that punk rock edge, like no one was doing that. And, right. you know, you Why were, you? it, well, and you're, and, and that, that, um, that lane, that, I mean, it, it, that it, it's still happening and driving today. And then I, I wonder if you'll indulge me in this, but, you know, obviously John Varvatos is, is a huge, global brand and such. And I look at Varvados and I look at how, and I think, well, how was doing it first. And yeah. I don't know if Varvados had a, li- a larger microphone and bankroll, but, uh, what's your take on that? Do you, do you see, was, it seemed like you guys kind of came out around the same time. Um, it, it just does seem a bit odd to me. You know, you were working with, you know, some great acts, you know, Chester from Lincoln Park and, um, you know, you can help me with some of the other guys, you're, uh, uh, Ryan from Orgy and some of these other dudes. They're really influential. Like, but then all of a sudden he comes out and like, he's kind of owning this whole rock and roll thing. Like, I don't know, like, how's that sit with you? <laughs> uh, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think how was the catalyst? I mean, let's face it being first, if I even was, is not always the best. In fact, these days I do my best not to be first on uh, when I see a movement or a trend, um, yeah, but because I think, you know, you can't take anything away from John. In fact, we've sat in many departments together in the stores, complement each other quite well. But I think it's the really good lesson on when you sell your company to the right, you know, the right backers. And when, and if you look at how maybe selling it to not the right backers, mm. um, being able to get the right kind of power behind you. But, um, but that being said, um, you know, part to your original question. Um, I don't know, you know, so when I, when I was working at Quicksilver and then, you know, owned HIC, sold that when I was 27 years old, um, not sure what my next move was going to be. I always considered myself a clothing designer. I never, when people ask me what they did, I'm like, I'm a clothing designer. I'm a clothing designer. And I, I just looked at board sports, you know, as a great, uh, outlet because that was my lifestyle. I'm a surfer, love, you know, outdoor guy. Um, and let's, let's face it, pimping money from teenagers is, um, been very, very good to, <laughs> to most of us, you know? True. Um, I don't, I don't mean that in a derogatory term, but I mean, you figure out the youth market, which, you know, many of us in Orange County have, and it's been, a, was a really good run. I mean, that was a, what, 30 year run that yeah. has, you know, completely changed now. But, um, at some point <clears throat> you asked in your, you know, when you sent me the email questions, you said, so what was it that 
know you to start how you I think the wording you used was was there a conflict were you upset with something or was something not working for you and that's kind of what it was I was I, I felt that I felt that I didn't really have the style that I wanted you know I'd show up to work every day um, which you know in flip-flops shorts and a t-shirt that kind of became my wardrobe at some point my whole closet looked like that um, and I just wasn't fulfilled in, in just making product and making money. It just didn't, it wasn't driving, it wasn't driving me anymore. Yeah. And so I remember trying to shop back in the late nineties for myself. I was trying to get a pair of diesel jeans yeah. and, you know, I'm a big guy. So they didn't fit. And I was trying to find a shirt that wasn't a big box and yeah. walk around with my girlfriend around the mall. And I'm just like, this is pathetic and I, I guess I was complaining about it quite a bit because she's like you know you need to just shut up and do something about it <laughs> um, and I'm like you know what I think you're right and and that's that's kind of how that started yeah so my my question to you was you know was your design a reaction to something off-putting that you wanted to correct in the fashion space <clears throat> so it seems yeah it seems uh you know that the 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 old adage of scratching your own itch right yeah. Well, this was, this was a pretty big itch because I could see that American men, just the way they're built, they're very athletic, they're broader in the shoulders and all the European lines that come over they're they're basically stick straight, you know, yeah. Asians and Europeans can wear the same kind of clothing yeah. or if you're a small American male, you can wear it. But for the most part, you know, fashion is, is for skinny, skinny dudes, you know, they skinny tall dudes, point. skinny tall dudes, yeah. you know, gay guys, Asians, you know, I'm not trying to, it just, it just, it just back then it was not cool, you know? And if you look at fashion in 90, uh, 99, right about 2000, it was like guys were in huge hoodies, uh, the cargo shorts, yeah. um, you know, it was the urban tidal wave that came from the East coast. And then, and then you see their girls and they're in these like little rock and roll jeans and you know, the skinny thing, jean thing was coming on for them. I'm like, there's something wrong with this picture. Like guys don't look right. They look like. Yeah. No. I, I, so, but while you're saying this, I'm thinking like, right. So, so there was some, there was the whole streetwear movement was, was huge. Um, yeah. And then, and now here you are sort of left to center and you're like, no, I want tight. I want skinny. I want like when you went to, and you're, you're friendly and, and, and had a business with Tony Hawk, right? Did you did right. you did you approach Tony Hawk and go, hey, I got this idea? Did he look at you cross-eyed like, dude, what? No one's gonna buy that, especially Tony Hawk, because here's a guy that's right. He's in that action sportswear scene that is the epicenter of the gigantic, you know, hooded sweatshirt and the shorts that were literally off the, you know, their backsides. Like, what what was that early resistance? And did you feel like, um, you were you were you were dead set on this idea and, and it had to work or were you skeptical or what, what? I guess I asked about five questions there, but what? No, I got you. I got you. Um, no. So it all fell together because all I was, was just frustrated. I didn't have a plan. Um, I was doing some freelance design work. I'd done this like whole techno gear package for no fear. I was, you know, I was freelancing. I was out, it was post Fox racing. And, and I was, my wife's like, man, you, you've got some amazing ideas. You got to find an outlet for it. So I was helping a friend 
with his accessory company, just make an introduction. So I go down to Blitz Distribution, which was owned by Tony Hawk and Pear Wellander, had all the cool skate brands in there. And they were trying to hire me to come in and design a skate brand for them. And I just came back to them. I said, guys, I really appreciate it, but the world needs another skate brand like a hole in the head. Like, <laughs> right. that's just not, right. not what the planet needs, you know? And, um, and they go, okay, Mr. Smarty Pants, like, if you think you got it figured out, what does the world need? And I said, hmm, funny you should That's ask. A really good question. Yeah. <laughs> Give me two days and I'll, and I'll, and I'll show you. So I rush back home. I just take all that energy and research and frustration. And, and once again, communicate visually, I put the design boards together and I'm like, I walk in and, and I just knew I'm like, there's no way these guys are going to get this. There's right. just no way. I, but I'm going to pitch it because they asked me, I'm going to pitch it as pure as I possibly can. And um, so I said, here it is. I want to take I want to take West Coast punk rock music, sport lifestyle, and I want to blend it with English tailoring. Right. And they just looked at me. <laughs> what? Right. And go, what, what do you call that? And I'm like, I call it cowboy punk meets English country gentleman. Like, they're like, you're kidding me. I mean, I, I can't even remember <laughs> just looking at me and Tony, they just they kind of looked at each other, they looked back at me and they're like, that's the greatest idea we've ever heard. Like, we, like, I mean, it was literally instant, instant connection in the room. There was no hesitation. It was just, let's do this. That's I incredible. Mean, it, it was incredible. And here, and, the, and so to the second part of your question, we're, you know, they're all baggy clothes and everything. But inside of Bliss Distribution, what you had was Jeff Raleigh. Um, what's that kid? Uh, train wreck. He was from Australia. Uh, you had these skate kids that were already on the tip of stealing their girlfriend's jeans because yeah, there okay. was there was no boys' jeans. And so, once again, I mean, come on, we're not designers. We're not we're not creating something new. We're interpreters, right? And so it just dovetailed perfectly that. Instead of having them sneak in or have their mom go buy a pair of, you know, Levi 517s, whatever the girl jean was, I'm like, I'll make them for you. So I just made chicks jeans for guys. I mean, it didn't start off to be skinny and tight. It just started off to be fitted. I mean, guys used to put jeans on and then take them off and go, dude, these won't fit. I'm like. No, they're they supposed to feel like great. that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're just not used to fabric touching your, your skin, you know. <laughs> exactly. So, and then. And then obviously you get early adopters um, on, you know, on the, you've got all the, the pro skaters who, like you said, were already kind of doing it. Then you really kind of give them, you give them a label to now associate with. And then you, you then cultivate that label and you populate that label um, with the whole rock and roll movement. So how does someone like a Chester come across your brand? Was he an Orange County guy or? <laughs> oh my God. That's so funny. Um yeah, yeah, he's he's in Orange County, Long Beach, Santa Monica, kind of you know between Newport Beach, where he's buying. Guy bought a lot of homes um, up and down the coast, but you know it, it doesn't. It was not immediately adopted by the skaters. In fact, I, there was a huge homophobia thing mm. because I brought fashion into the building, and you got you know Birdhouse and Baker yeah. and yeah. hookups and all these brands and these guys are looking at me like dude who's the fashion kook in the corner like what's this guy do this yeah. does this you know which one of these things doesn't belong in this yeah. picture and so i got a lot of 
chastisement and harassment in the beginning until the really, really cool skaters adopted it. And then it was, then it just happened like overnight, you know, just flash, like a flash sale basically. Um, but so somehow because of who Tony Hawk is, I mean, he just started bringing people in like left and right. He's like, you gotta meet, you gotta meet our new, our new star, our new kid, you know? And, um, so I started dressing bands and that was one of my targets from the beginning. How do I get cool guys like, you know, rock guys to wear our clothes without branding it? You right. know, I mean, you right. have so many CBGB and, and, you know, motorhead shirts out there. Right. And so I really focused on what it was that they wanted and, Number one, it was the silhouette. Once the silhouette changed, once there was no more cargo pants, cargo shorts, hoodie, big old hoodies, and flat brim hats, then every guy had to face that question. Am yeah. I going to stay looking like this, or am I going to start looking like that? Right. And that silhouette change created the revolution. Then right. everybody jumped on. Like, that's, you know, Barbados and, who you know, I, I won't say he jumped on, but whoever else came into the space, which was pretty much everybody change the fit once we change the fit then it was just apply your aesthetic to it but um yeah so with chester he came in and when i first saw him i'm like you gotta be kidding me i mean he was in dickies you're kidding he was wearing those little cholo shoes and a wife and a a wife beater t-shirt that said white boy on it you know i think was a brand right and spiky hair and this funky necklace around it and i was just like oh dude, dude. no 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 like <laughs> no, no. this is not good no. you know i mean trying to be respectful of the guy's legitimate rock star and so he's like all right man what are we doing and i said well i'm gonna have you add my little changing room inside my studio i spent most of the days putting guys in clothes and convincing them right. you know this was the way to go <laughs> and so he goes in he and I was telling I was telling his wife to Linda this not too long ago. He goes in. We had this pair of jeans called the Skinny Puppies, and he goes to try them on, and he comes out with them kind of halfway around his thighs, and he's like, "Dude, these are the wrong size. These don't fit." And I'm like, "Well, first of all, take off those homeboy boxers you got on, go back in there and just bare ball this thing and yep. put these on. Yep. Come out and all." Let me decide if they fit or not. Right. You know? So he comes out. He's got a pair of whatever size he was. I think he was a 30 back then. And he puts these jeans on. And every girl in the office was just like, oh, my God. Like, you know, just truly like just, yeah, yeah that's the right. look. Right. And he saw the reaction of them. And then it was it was over. I mean, he left his clothes in my studio. <laughs> and, Got a whole new how wardrobe, the skinny shirts, the woven shirts, the whole thing, and then it was just, you know, from there we 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 developed quite a good friendship. That's awesome. Um, and so so you're you've got now you know kind of those you got the rock and roll tribes, you got the 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 the, the bleeding edge, you know, skate movement guys rocking it. The brand is is doing its thing. Um, so 2006. You you're on a rocket ship. I assume that you know you you, so you sell the brand in 2006. That's correct. 2007. 2007. 2007 yeah. Okay. Yeah. So for for the for the budding entrepreneurs out there, um, you know, 
maybe take us through some of those emotions or those the the biggest obstacles that you faced where you're sort of like, hey, you know, you're the darling at retail. You're on every every rock star in every magazine. And yes, the brand's making money. Um, but internally, you know, um, there are there are real hurdles and struggles that happen within a brand. And it's certainly not all um, parties and, and, and hobnobbing and all that. It's, it's, um, it's super grindy and it's very competitive and it's watching margins and balancing, uh, you know, your, you know, your cash flows and, you know, try and be careful on your hirings. What are some of the things that, I don't know, like if, if you want to share, but you know, that you'd either do over or that you felt you did extremely well that you'd like to impart on someone that might have, you know, an inkling of a dream out there to kind of pursue their own thing. Okay. Um, well, you know, with how every single thing we had to cut trail on, there was no template. And I mean, talk about bleeding edge. It was hard just to convince people that men's fashion was a legitimate category. I remember buyers at stores going, we don't even have a category for this. We don't know where to put you. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know where to put you. Yeah. What floor are you going to belong on? How do you know? Right. And then there was other people going, man, this, this feels like when the whole hip hop clothing thing happened, like we don't care. We just want in, you know? Um, that's insane, dude. That's insane. But you know, how was always really small and I think it perceived, I remember Bob McKnight telling me when he was looking at potentially purchasing the company, he's like, dude, he goes, you get more press than, than anybody. Like, why don't you come work for us and just head up our marketing department and, (laughs) You know, but that was a job all day long yeah. from morning to night. I was talking with, you know, PR agents and press and fittings and, you know, outfitting guys on tour and everybody wanted to be dressed. And then at night when everybody went home, then I would work on the collection, which of course was always late and, you know, tons of detail, like you said, costing and pricing. And so my days were, were typically, you know, 16 hours, sometimes longer, yeah. six days a week, no question. Um, yeah. And, but to answer your question of the sale, that was not my idea. Um, I think the reality of it was, was, was twofold. Number one, it's incredibly cash intensive to run a fashion company and blitz distributions business model up to that point was credit card. You want our goods, (laughs) give me your credit card, then we'll ship it to you. Right. So now we're doing these huge LCs to China, you know, like $800,000 for suit jackets. Like, What? Yeah. Like, are you kidding me? Right. That's like that's a serious bankroll. So it was really making Pear um, uncomfortable. And then at the same time, you have Tony Hawk and his explosion and Activision and all of that, and his very um, uh, protective uh, sister and his legal team, kind of looking at how as as maybe a bit of a liability. Like mm. like this thing's this thing's blowing up and this guy's kind of a character you got in there. And, um, <laughs> so yeah, you're the redheaded stepchild, but you're, but you're also yeah. kind of the golden child too, right? I mean, it was, things were working and, and it, and, it, and there was, ex, there was a ton of influence being exerted uh, by how I loved it. I thought right? I, you, could put, you, you, you take the talent and, and the edginess and the rawness of skate, which they're always on everything first. Yep. And then you bring, you know, skill in and the ability to execute. And my team was highly qualified. I mean, we, we brought people in that were just 
you know, they were just bleeding, bleeding the, the movement. And, um, and it just created awesome synergy. But I think that Tony and, and Pear just got scared. I mean, and at the same time, there was a gold rush to acquire any premium brand you could get your hands on. I mean, we had VF Corporation, Heartmarks, Quicksilver. Everybody was sniffing around because they all thought we were $40 million, you know. And I'm like, when they found out that we were, you know, around 10, they were like, oh, oh, well, that doesn't. That doesn't fit our. You got to be forty to do ten X. You know, right. like I'm like, well, who made up that number? Right? Don't you just buy what's cool? You know, right. like what about the white space start, opportunity? Yeah, you start learning about valuation and yeah. all that crap, and I'm like, yeah, whatever. You know, I mean, you start taking you start taking meetings, and VF I think would have been a great home for how um, in hindsight, but you know, I'm one third of of a, of a, of a whole and two thirds majority wins, you know? So, right. So, okay. So the company gets acquired. Um, what, you know, I, having gone through a bit of that myself, I have my own notions on the subject, but, yeah. um, you know, what ultimately happened with how was, was there, was there a culture change? Was, was the, the public and retailer perceptions changed or, or was that largely intact? Or and what about for you personally? What did that mean? Did that did that um, positively or negatively affect how you approached future collections or the growth of the brand? Or or did it affect your strategy? Yeah, I mean, you know, you and I are culture junkies, and you realize when a tribe is together what belongs together. And this is no, no new story. I mean, you look at every brand under the sun and eventually they go through their downs after their ups. And, you know, there's, especially when you got sale, a sale of a company or cash investment or infusement, any of those things can change the dynamics. Um, but at the last minute, when all these other companies were looking at us, this company, Seattle Pacific Industries, um, which owns Union Bay, which is really a mid-tier bohemian out of Seattle came and snatched the company up. So, um, that was not my first choice. I didn't think it was culturally the right fit and, you know, but really, really amazing guys. There was a, a, a China arm. So the Lung family has the whole manufacturing thing in China. And then the finance and distribution was, um, up in Seattle but I just, you know, the thought of losing my warehouse, the thought of, you know, having that all move off site, not being able to touch the product. And, you know, they just wanted me to become a creative director, oversee the whole thing. And then they, they you know, we got it. We got it from here, kid. You know, we got it. And I, it just it just didn't feel right. Right from the beginning, it yeah. didn't feel right. So um, I think I knew within the first two weeks, I'm like, this is this is not this is probably not the right home, but you know what? I think I can learn from these guys. I think I've got a great opportunity, plenty of financing and infrastructure. They bought a beautiful building up in Gardena, um, old, um, old Nissan photo studio. We had a killer building up there. But one of the things you said the other day that absolutely happened to me was, you know, when you have all your design team, your your technical designers and artists in one room, and there's just that that buzz, that energy going on, and you've got synergy, and you can look to the left, and you can look to the right, and you know what's going on. 
and then you move into this big old building and everybody's got an office. Yeah. Done. (laughs) Done. Done. Yeah. Elvis has left the building. Stick it with a fork. Yeah. So, and then, and then where it was based, I didn't realize being on the West side of, you know, LA versus Huntington beach, people don't like driving to Gardena for some reason. So all of a sudden my fittings got cut in half. I mean, we were dressing like, I don't know, we dressed American Idol and Rockstar in excess and all those stories. I think American Idol, we did all 16, 17 seasons. Um, so a lot of stylists. We, we had a lot of stuff going on with Hollywood. And it just became more of a hassle. Um, can't even explain it. But By yeah, the way, did, you, was- did you dress Chris Martin from Coldplay? Yeah, yeah. That's um, <laughs> bonkers. Chris Martin and... Uh, uh, who else came down? They came down in a taxi from Hollywood. That was one of the, <laughs> okay. one of the guys. There was, t- there was two, Jim Greco, that skater and, and Coldplay both took taxis from Hollywood on separate occasions <laughs> to come shop. How right before they were doing, uh, uh, I don't even know how you found that detail. Um, right. Before I do my homework, were, bro. I know you do. Yeah. <laughs> good job. Detective sleuth. Um, right before they did Coachella. And so, like the first album, like the Parachutes, I, or was he already I, like Chris Martin from Coldplay? Like, was he? No, I think he was Chris Martin from. This was two thousand and six, seven. So I can't remember to be honest with you um, what album they were they were touring at that time. It's probably the first I, one. I think they were. I think they, were they headlining? I think they were headlining. But the headlining, I can't, I can't remember. Honestly, he came in. Um, I was so busy trying to get a collection ready to go to Magic, you know, go to the project shows. Yep. And the timing was never good. My staff was always pissed at me, like, dude, you know, you got musicians in here all the time. You got work to do. Like, I'm like, yeah, but it's Coldplay. And they're like, yeah, whatever. And I think, <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think Tony was um, related to. Um, is he related to Chris Martin through Mary or anyway, there was a relationship issue there. So I got to take care of these guys. They're Tony's, they're Tony, Tony's boys. You yeah. Know? Right. And they were nice. They invited us. They gave us VIP backstage tickets to my wife and I invited us out and we had a good time, but yeah, that was, we digress. That was good. Yeah. Good yeah. No, I, he's, he's one of my favorites and I, I saw, I came across that in my research and I wanted to ask you, that's, that's pretty cool. He comes off. Um, now I think pretty humble given, given his level. Very, very humble. Um, I don't know if they were overly impressed with the clothing at that time. I don't think I had a, I mean, it wasn't like I had a ton of clothes to put on people because everything was sold out. You know, I mean, I was, I was essentially making custom clothes and clothes for stores and things sold fast and we didn't have a ton of stuff. Yeah. Well, from a brand point of view, that's, that's a great place to be, right? Right, right. You, know, you got scarcity model working, and you got everyone clamoring for your stuff. It's better than being over distributed and on a sale rack. So, you know, good brand problems to have. Um, so, okay. So then, th- then, so I'm I'm hearing you know you seem to be taking an optimistic point of view on on the acquisition side of things. Like you said, sort of like okay, well, you know, this thing's now well financed. You know, maybe this isn't my favorite, you know, uh, surrounding, but. Uh, I've got the ability to learn and do some things creatively, but at what point do you go, all right, enough's enough. I'm getting off the train. And and then, you know, is that, is that right around the time when, when you uh, decide to go in your walkabout or what, 
What, what was, give me the time gap there. Well, so there's, so there's seven years with, or six, six and a half, almost seven years with Tony and Pear, and then there was eight years with Seattle Pacific Industries. And, um, you know, in all fairness, I mean, they were good guys, good guys, like smart, you know, extremely experienced, hungry. They wanted things to work, but just culturally not the right fit. Then you add 2007, 2008, you know, yeah. economic meltdown to the yeah, factor. Right. They'd already had a couple failures with other things they had tried. And they were, you know, we just started hemorrhaging according to them. Now, I'm not going to get into the details there's a manufacturer's agreement. They make a lot of money on the front end of this thing, you know, by owning the manufacturing, which I was not part of. Right. Um, but we won't go into that. Um, according to them, I was losing money. Um, the reality is, is the new 10 million was 5 million. And I was quite happy with that. Um, small, you know, retailers are going out of business every day. And, yeah. and I think we could weather the storm and then come back out as heroes and then maybe look at a sale down the road or whatever the case may be. But um, there just was a lot of pressure on me to change the collection, to be more sportswear oriented, um, constant conversations of shutting us down, just just a lot of economic pressure that just, I mean, dude, it just stressed me out. I mean, it was stress and depression just... <laughs> you know, I don't know how else to put it. It just kind of put, put my flame out, you know? Yeah. Well, again, you know, we're, you're, you're talking to a dude on the other end of the line here that, uh, you know, again, parallel universes. Yeah. I've, uh, I've been there, done that. It's a lonely place. It's a stressful place. And, and no one, no one can bear that burden, but you, and no one can really f- feel what you feel, um, in that place. Uh, yeah. you know, I mean, I think we, we take it upon ourselves because that is our, that is our chosen path in life to do that and to lead and to be out in front of things. But, um, and as great and as glamorous as it may look like, it's, it's tough. No doubt about it. Yeah. Those were some tough years. And, you know, I never gave up. Um, but as my original team left and moved on to other things, I got poached heavily by brands that just knocked us off and, stole some of my, my best talent. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, it is what it is. You leave your, you leave the back door open and Hey, this is not a, you know, we're not here. There, there's no friends in the fashion business. You know, if somebody's going to take you out, they're going to take you out. But you know, I, I did everything I could. And actually some of my favorite collections came out after the sale and things that I saw morphing and trending. And, um, and I think we really did actually we did more volume after the sale, but, the magic wasn't there, you know? So now is, is how the brand, is it still, is there a brand being produced today? I think it's sitting on the shelf. I think they do some SMU. They do a little bit of Costco. I don't really know. I talked to, uh, my partner, Steve Ritchie, not too long ago, see if he wanted to fire it back up or get a license going, um, or license it to me. And there's some interest there. Um, but at the same time, you know, I don't really like driving into the future, looking in the rearview mirror. Um, I, I've just, I've been working on something else and, and I, I'm putting my energy into that and, you know, wouldn't ever rule it out, but my, my life is not defined by, by how the brand, you know, there's yeah. just, you know, your name's on it, your name's on it. So what, but, yeah. um, yeah. it's kind of hard to, to create magic twice. So you said you're working on something. Um, are you able to disclose at this point? Can you give us any sense of what that might be? 
I can in general terms. Um, you know, it's being defined kind of like how it was, you know, that wasn't completely defined, but, and this just, some of the stuff just developed this morning, actually, when I was, when I was talking to you before this. Um, but from that original idea of the County Line Ranch, I, I look at it like this. Do you remember the Hollywood Ranch Market? You ever been to Japan? You ever been to, to the Hollywood Ranch Market in Japan or done any research about the I, one here in LA? Yeah. First of all, I, yeah, I've been to Tokyo like five times and I'm, you're going to hate me. I don't like it. I don't. I mean, like, <laughs> I get Shibuya and Shinjuku, and I, I get yeah. it. I get it. I think the Raggedy Ann thing, and the, like, I get it. Let's dress in costumes and go walk around. But uh, and I and listen. I don't. I don't mean to discount. I think. I think the Japanese on their uh, on their sense of uh, being a study, whether it's denim or whiskey or fashion, uh, they are the best on the planet. Um, right. And I have much respect. Uh, but no, personally. Uh, I mean, I don't even like New York. I don't like people too much. That's why I moved to Idaho. Um, <laughs> I, that's why I live on a ranch and I just see horses and cows every day and I'm much more content. Uh, yeah. and that's absolutely a true fact, but, but so no, I, I, I'm not familiar, um, with that spot in Japan. What is it? Anyway, it, what the Japanese do, what they do best, which is copy America and, and sell it back to us, you know, in a better way. Um, Hollywood ranch market was, was, I think it was on, I don't want to say Hollywood and buying, but it was right below the studios and back in the fifties. And it was basically a general store that carried random stuff, you know, denim and, and, and milkshakes and whatever else. And, and it kind of evolved. Well, the Japanese took the concept and when I would go to Tokyo and go shopping, you know, in this particular neighborhood, um, I just loved it. I pull up to the front of the store and it had like wheelbarrows and, and, you know, um, ladders and pitchforks and shovels. And then you walk inside and it was like incredible Japanese denim next to Van's shoes. And it just, so kind of, like, you know, it kind of reminds me of what you're saying and maybe I'm off, but remember, remember when double RL kind of came out? And yeah. when you went into a double RL and you got a really immersive experience, is that kind of what you're saying? Right. So the full experience, just cooler than cool, highly inspirational. It was very, very much a California cool type of store, had all the right brands. Um, and then, you know, just early on, it, it just was a place that you get cool books and, and kind of a mixture of that. So with our ranch, which is called the County Line Ranch, I thought, you know what, why not do a marketplace that's not traditional? And that's one of the things if we, you know, if we kind of finish this conversation up about where I'm headed is I've been studying the market and I've been studying, you know, how to develop product and collections for decades. And I just think that the collection wholesale model is kind of broken. Um, I think there's people that do it really well, but you've got to have a ton of capital You've got to be well-backed. And for those people that do that, then they're in the game, no doubt. But if you're a youngish entrepreneur or you you know, you know got a startup concept, I don't think coming into wholesale is the play, you yeah. know? Yeah, I agree. So my wife and I developed this concept called, you know, the County Line Ranch Marketplace Suits, Soil, and Sundry. <laughs> and, Great. you know, so it's got that bit of tailoring. You know, if you look at back at, like, that famous, you know, American Gothic image of the farmer and his wife yeah. or just in general pioneers. Yeah. I mean, what yeah. pioneers that's, that founded this country always have worn tailored clothing from Europe because that's the clothes they came over with. Right. 
and then it's got that whole kind of New York aesthetic and that contemporary aesthetic. Um, soil being anything that would come from the earth and the dirt, you know, so we've got our seeds and our crops and all that. And then sundries would be the accessories. Well, so how that is, is morphed is I've been talking to a lot of my friends are in the spirit and craft beer industry. And I've got some friends that are in the, the, their influencers and other ones that have distilleries. And I really kind of thought I wanted to get into that space but I realized after some due diligence after about a year or so, like, you know, I really just don't want to own or be part owner of a distillery or brewery. Like, you know, I know you're on a, I think you said you're on a board, you help a, a brewery out, but I thought, what, how are people consuming experiences these days? Right. Essentially what, what I want to do is create a marketplace where things that come together are a little more collaborative um, instead of being um, hand shackled, handcuffed to a brand, a, one particular brand or one, um, you know, a collection that you know, you know how that works. Yeah. You start, you have a couple of hits, and then you just start chasing the business and yep. can't get it cheap enough, can't get it, you know, right. fast enough. So, um, I've got a couple friends. We're going to come together and we're going to build product around craft cocktails and craft food and ultimately wine. Um, it's going to have an apparel component. It's going to have kind of a more of a home component because there's, you know, accessories and cool hardware and things that, you know, bartenders and, and distilleries use. Um, but I work in a studio right now and my wife actually is the, the, the operations officer there at the Anderson brothers in seal beach and they they focus on 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 the craft beer industry, and it is Ryan. I'm telling you, it's unbelievable the shift. It's like it's like breweries are the new you know the new Ruka, the new Volcom. Like, oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean they they don't just want the T-shirt and the hat. They want everything you know, and the beer, of course. They want everything they can get that's associated with it. And yeah. So yeah, you know, it's kind of like Red Bull or Monster coming in and just shifting the game. So I don't know. I have this. It, the, the idea is formulating. It's it's getting more solid, but it's kind of this idea of of creating a marketplace where we'll have some clients, we'll have some customers, but we'll also create a brand experience that'll curate the best of the best for this industry that has massive, massive marketing dollars. Yeah, behind them right but basically when they go to design merch they just go to merch companies right. and slap their logo on something yep. right right so if we figured we'd bring maybe a little bit of more of a design aesthetic to the market um and it has kind of a multi-tier uh a revenue stream to it and i you know it's kind of like pitching cowboy punk meets english country gentleman it was a <laughs> All bit over again yeah yeah just kind of a bit out there yeah. and all sudden this morning got a call from a couple investors that are like dude we we want to get in on this thing so um it's it's happening right now in fact i got a meeting this evening when when we when we hang up i'm heading up to santa monica and uh it's all just kind of it's all kind of come together and i'm excited to you know share how how that builds but i don't have a lot of rock solid details because we're putting it together right now yeah, well, and again, not that you're looking for my opinion or validation, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. I think it's an awesome idea. <laughs> I think, uh, uh, you know, having my uh, my toe in in, in the in the 
uh, in the beer space in the craft beer space a bit. Um, I think you're you're once again right right in the lane um, with your with your take, and, and I agree with you. It's a huge market that's continues to evolve, and um, through acquisition of these you know micro brews and these gigantic exits and it's a pretty exciting time probably much like the surf skate industry was for us back in the day i I feel like it has shifted into this whole distillery spirits curated craft beer it's it's cool i mean i'm happy to see it so that's awesome man thank you for sharing that um i got a whole bunch of stuff i'll probably we might have to do part two but i um maybe just a couple more a couple more minutes of your time so i know you gotta you gotta get on the 405 um (laughs) So I have a segment that I like to do from time to time, and it's called Questions from My Kids. Okay. Um, so my son, uh, Jack, uh, who's age nine, he wants to know, when did you first know you wanted to make clothes? When did I first know I wanted to make clothes? I, Jack, I was a high school dropout. I was trying to hook up with this girl. She took me to a FITM, Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising Luncheon. All I heard was free chicken, free chicken lunch. I was a starving surfer at the time. And I went so that I could meet this girl. And ultimately, I ended up signing for up for design school. Um, and she didn't. So <laughs> it's a free chicken lunch, Jack. And I ended up becoming a designer. Not that's, very sick. That's a great answer. And I didn't know that. That's a, that's a cool little... That's that's cool. Uh, my daughter, age eight, uh, her name's Josie. Um, she says, "Do you make girls' clothes?" The first part of the question, I'll let you answer. Uh, do I, I? I'm I'm known primarily as a menswear designer. However, for a few clients recently, I have done some girls' clothes. Yes. Cool. She also wants to know: Do you design your own prints and fabrics? Yes, that's something from the day I started working at Quicksilver. I've always developed my own fabrics, fabric blends. Um, you know, we used to have to do a lot more of that back then, and definitely prints. Uh, we never talked about Rin Spooner, no. um, but it was print, print heavy company. So it was Quicksilver back in the day. But yes, I did both fabric and prints, Josie. Cool. And my five-year-old son was in a bad mood this morning, uh, little Georgie, and I said, um, hey, I was interviewing, uh, planning on interviewing someone uh, that's a designer today. And he said, uh, and I said, so what would you like to ask him? And he said, dad, that question's too hard. And he walked away from me. <laughs> so Here's some advice, son. Stick to your guns, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe, um, you know, there's so much I want to ask you, but I, I think we did kind of get into some of the the future vision, um, and, you know, kind of what you're, what you're seeing around the corner. Let me just ask you lastly, um, do you, do you practice, um, anything on a consistent basis, uh, for sort of the guide to successful living, whether that be a form of exercise or a meditation or, or certain, um, books that you like to read on the regular to come back to, to, to center yourself or, um, anything there? Yeah, you know, I don't want to sit here and get into the me too process of, oh, I do this and that. But basically, I like to get up early. Um, I've got an infrared sauna in my little studio, and I uh, I do kind of prayer and meditation. I'm actually kind of a Bible reader. I like, I'm, I'm fascinated by history and prophecy. Um, I like to kind of get my mind 
work and, and, and obsession with design comes very naturally to me. So to balance that out, I like to um, kind of go elsewhere. But as far as, you know, websites and brands and all that, I think what I really like to do is just say, um, I'm just, I'm just very curious about people and, and, and how things function. And so I'm out a lot. I just observe life. I observe nature. I always have. It's why I like traveling. It's why I like looking at things. And I don't really look at a lot of clothing brands, um, for my design cues, you know? So, and and I'm a surfer. I love that. And I, we both have our mutual friend, Scott Prohaska, who's perpetually trying to get me to, you know, get healthier and drop more weight. So we're, we're making some progress there, which I'm happy to say has been good. I've been plant-based lifestyle for the past two months. That's been wow. phenomenal. Wow. I'm, I'm happy. Yeah. Very cool. Happy with the goals. That's cool. I'm trying to actually get him on the show too. He's, he's kind of blowing up these days. Yeah. But, he's, uh, he's doing real good. I'm working with him, helping him out right now as well. So it's a, it's been a beneficial relationship. Yeah. Well, listen, yeah, I know we didn't get to all my questions I had, you know, prefaced you with, but uh, I feel like we covered a lot of ground today. And um, it's always a pleasure to connect with you, uh, certainly in, in this setting and in, in a social setting. And um, yeah, you, I'll always remain a fan of yours. And uh, I can't wait to see what you're going to do next. So, um, you know, please keep in touch. And um, thank you for coming on today. Oh, and if, if you guys want to get a hold of Jade, anyone listening out there, so Instagram is uh, at jade eric with a k how so j-a-d-e-e-r-i-k-h-o-w-e uh you can email him at jade how at me.com and his website jadehow.org. and of course check me out at uh brevitycode.com uh brevity code show on instagram i'm terrible at posting so bear with me there uh, but I've been moving and adjusting to my, my life on the farm for the past few months. So forgive the long gap in shows. Uh, we're going to get this thing rocking and on track once again, Jade, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, it was a real pleasure, my man. Thanks, Ryan. I had a blast and it's been an honor. Thank you for uh, taking the time with me. Right on, dude.